Peace with Ticks The other day at Bell Choir rehearsal, we were practicing a tricky piece that had a riff of competing doublets and triplets, and I requested that we drill on several problematic measures. Just as we launched into the piece, I felt a tick marching across my forehead. The bells in both of my hands prevented any discreet removal. Since we were rehearsing for my sole benefit, I tried to stay focused and ignore the patter of little feet. However, when the tick turned northward and headed into my scalp, I said, Sorry to interrupt the rehearsal, but i got to get this tick out of my hair. As I deftly extracted it, I noticed the slack-jawed stares of my musical mates, who looked at me as the epitome of pestilence, as someone who was unaware of the simple courtesy of delousing before a social event. I was startled and dropped the tick, further exacerbating the ambient anxiety. The very fastidious woman next to me insisted that we find the tick and kill it before proceeding. She spotted it crawling near her open-toed sandal, and before I could pick it up, she tried to impale it with a mechanical pencil. The tip snapped and the tick pinged out of sight. We continued with our rehearsal, but the choir was clearly distracted by the free-ranging bloodsucker in our midst. Several years ago, I would have had the same horrified reaction as the bell choir, but living next to a prairie has given me a hard-won respect for the tick. Yes, I was originally appalled at the thought of a tick taking up residence in the succulent folds of my body. I never strayed from a well-trodden path and always tucked my pant legs into my socks, even if I was just walking down the driveway to get the mail. I would hesitate to take a long walk by myself, fearful of the ensuing panic if I sensed a tick on an unreachable part of my body without a companion to pry it off. The threat of Lyme disease was not the issue, since fortunately our neighborhood ticks are the larger brown dog ticks and not the diminutive deer ticks. It's just that, as a general rule, I find bloodsuckers unnerving and considered ticks the worst. Leeches are easily avoidable and highly visible. Mosquitoes don't linger, they suck blood quickly with a smash-and-grab strategy. In contrast, ticks are stealthy and crafty. They could crawl all over my body and suck for days on end. But now, I just don't let them. I do a careful tick check each night, peeling them off calves, thighs, arms, forearms, and my neck has become nothing more than an activity of daily living. I am at peace with my neighborhood ticks. In fact, I look forward to the arrival of ticks as a sure harbinger of spring as they emerge from the leaf litter and seek their first blood meal. They climb up vegetation to a height that is consistent with the size of their prey. When ticks detect carbon dioxide, heat, shadows, or vibrations, they assume the questing position with their two front legs waving in front of them ready to take advantage of a host brushing by. If their efforts are unsuccessful and they begin to dry out from exposure, they simply crawl back down into the moist leaf litter and once rehydrated, they repeat the process. As our dogs romp through the brush at the side of the pass, they must be the ideal host for the tick. The dab of anti-tick goo on the dog's neck prevents the ticks from biting and embedding, but the dogs just transfer the ticks into our house, where they drop off and begin to search for new juicy prospects namely us mortgage payers. Our dogs are poorly trained, and thus the ticks can assume the position and quest on the furniture. We didn't appreciate our cohabitants until the tick
ticks started to show up in our bed. When he shaved in the morning, Nick would find a couple ticks on his neck. This led to frantic tick checks before getting into bed. Carefully making the bed in the morning to keep the ticks out of the sheets and diligently keeping the doors closed during the day to deny access to the dogs. However, this was not foolproof. One night there was a gummy old tennis ball on the bed, a sure sign that there had been a breakdown in our vigilance. As our first tick spring progressed, I realized the ticks have a definite preference for Nick. Given the choice of both of us in bed, the ticks always chose Nick. I never woke up with one on me. When Nick took the dogs for a walk, he always stayed right on the mowed path, out of contact with ankle-high, tick-laden grass. Nevertheless, he would routinely find four or five ticks on him when he returned. Ticks are exquisitely sensitive to carbon dioxide. In fact, scientists can conduct a tick census by dragging a block of dry ice through a field. Therefore, my working theory is that Nick outgasses more carbon dioxide than I do. Or perhaps I'm the outlier and produce pitiful quantities. Either way, this discrepant carbon dioxide theory is consistent with the fact that Nick also preferentially attracts mosquitoes. So if I stay close, he'll siphon any bloodsuckers away from me. I'm thrilled with this deterrent strategy. Nevertheless, Nick and I still needed to develop an efficient killing method. Ticks have a hard covering called the scutum that prevents the simple smash or squish. The most reliable technique was to drown them in the sink or toilet. But this required a trek into the kitchen or bathroom, a particular inconvenience in the middle of the night. One morning, Nick woke up to find a tick between his thumb and forefinger. Apparently, he had plucked a tick during the night and just kept it there until morning. This was not a reliable strategy. Nick ultimately devised the happy solution of scissors coupled with a wastebasket near the bed or couch. We could simply cut off their heads and deposit the body parts. My journey from tick phobia to equanimity has now matured into wonder and awe as I began to appreciate the improbable machinations of the tick life cycle. How any single tick could ever make it close to the promised land of our bed. Females lay 2,000 to 10,000 eggs in the leaf litter in the hopes that the newborn larvae will find a host, suck blood, drop off, molt into nymphs, who then find a second host, suck blood, drop off, and molt into adults, who now must find a third host, suck blood, and then must be lucky enough to share the host with the mate of the same species. Pheromones then guide the two ticks together, perhaps sending the male tick up the pant leg, under the waistband, across the vast stretch of the soft and tempting torso, over the shoulder, finally reaching the female tick, patiently waiting at the hairline. The female tick interrupts her feeding and rolls over, so that the male can deposit a package of sperm into her genital pore. The female then completes her feeding, drops off, and lays her eggs. A life cycle requiring three separate hosts seems fragile at best, with multiple opportunities for failure at each step. I envision a questing tick on the tip of a grass stem, day after day wildly waving his legs in a desperate search for a host. He finally exults in his good fortune to find a pant leg, and then the warmth of our couch. A blast of CO2 washes over him, and he makes his way toward Nick's calf. Instead of claiming the first available patch of flesh, he inexplicably decides to explore further up the leg, and as he wanders, he twitches a few hair legs. 
Nick, now hypersensitive to movement, reaches down, grabs a tick, and idly cuts his head off. Life cycle interrupted. One would think that the grinding forces of evolution would come up with a more efficient life cycle, but an initial oversupply winnowed down to the lucky few is a time-tested strategy to overcome harrowing odds. Ticks have been around for some 393 million years and have sucked the blood of dinosaurs. They were here before we came and will be here after we go. Biology has always been a sustaining interest of mine, and after college I took the well-trodden path to medical school. Now I wonder if I'd been exposed to ticks some 40 years ago, whether a tick specialist acarologist would have been my calling. I would have known that I was not cutting the head off a tick, since the head is fused to the abdomen, but instead I was cutting off the tick's paired sensory palps and central calicerae, which house the barbed, blood-sucking, and probing device called the hypostome. Perhaps I would have been transfixed by the mechanics of the tick's specialized egg-waxing organ that keeps their eggs from drying out in the leaf litter. Perhaps I'd be so career-invested in ticks that I could become aroused by the following description of tick copulation by B. Feldman Musham, one of the founding giants of acarology. The male introduces the hypostome and calicerae into the female genital aperture, and the palps splay out adhering to the female cuticula. After several minutes of intermittent movement into and out, the male extrudes a transparent balloon, the ectospermatophore, into which, after one or two seconds, he injects his sperm. At this point, Dr. Feldman Musham, hunched over his microscope, might reach for a hanky to mop his brow as he watched the ticks reach their climax. Extensive contortions of the body are required in order to force the spermatophore forward where it can be grasped by the calicerae and implanted into the female. The male does not remove its mouthparts from the female's genital pore until the spermatophore has arrived near the aperture. I could have joined the Acarology Society of America. Hell, I could have been its president based on my groundbreaking work on tick saliva, which multitasks as an anticoagulant, antihistamine, and a cement that keeps the tick in place. It might even turn out that tick saliva could be repurposed into a vaccine against Lyme disease. Research dollars would pour in. Dare I think Nobel? No, I've missed my chance. It's too late for glory, laud, and honor. But the lowly tick has taught me respect for the complexity of all living creatures. As I gaze at a tick balancing on my fingertip, I know there's a fascinating world at the edge of the prairie, on my doorstep, in my couch, and crawling up my upper arm. <laughs>